Good morning, Bethel. All right, so we are drawing our summer series, Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith, to a close this morning, and we're doing so by looking at Psalm 131. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, we're going to read that in just a minute. Psalm 131. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew in front of you, and you can find that passage on page 519. So again, the series has been entitled Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith. The fight of your life is the fight of faith. We need to learn how to fight the good fight of the faith for the good of our own souls and for the good of others. The Christian life is a life of faith from first to last, and there's one battle. It's got lots of different fronts that it's waged on, but at the heart is a fight for faith. So the root of all sin is unbelief, and that unbelief, when it goes public, looks like envy. So the, the weeds above ground look like envy or fear or grumbling or anxiety, but the root underneath is unbelief. So this morning we're going to consider anxiety and faith. We're going to take aim at the unbelief that crops up like anxiety and striking at that root and seeding down deep with gospel grace and truth when we're trusting the Lord what grows up is the beautiful plant or tree or flower or whatever of trust in the Lord. And it looks like composure. It looks like quietness of soul. So, I mean, don't we feel oftentimes like we're just at the, at the mercy of our anxieties? You ever feel that way? Kind of helpless? Can we actually fight our anxieties and cultivate this quietness and composure of soul? Well, David says yes in Psalm 131, and it wasn't because he had this quiet life as a scholar in an ivory tower somewhere. He was under threat a lot. Um, there were mutinies under his rule before he became king. Saul was trying to kill him left and right. So he's got something to say to us. This isn't a cheap or easy calmness quietness, composure of soul that David speaks of here. So he had to fight for it as well. So Psalm 131 is testimony to the truth that the gospel is more powerful than the what-if threats that we allow to shake us. So let's read Psalm 131, and then we'll walk through it. So the superscription there says, A Song of Ascents of David. What is a song of ascent? Well, it applies to the grouping of psalms. Psalm 120 to Psalm 134, and most likely they were used for God's people, almost like a little songbook for the pilgrims, as they would ascend up to Jerusalem during the annual feasts of the Lord. So they would make this pilgrimage three times a year or so, um, and you can imagine them singing these psalms on their way up, the songs of ascent. So let's look at there. It's just three verses long. Look at verse 1. O Lord, or O Yahweh, those four capital letters signifying his personal covenant name. O Yahweh, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. 
But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in Yahweh from this time forth and forevermore. So, we're going to look at it in three points. Um, There's an outline in the bulletin if that's helpful, and the points will also be up here on the screen. So, first off, verse 1, anxiety and arrogance. O Lord, there's emphasis um, there in the Hebrew. My heart inner person is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. In other words, I'm not puffed up. I'm not, I don't have an inflated view of my own self-importance. I'm not thinking too highly of myself. I'm not looking down also on others. I'm, I'm not looking down on God's ways. Sometimes we can judge God's ways and think, what are you doing? So he's not looking down on God in his ways, and he's not looking down on others. He knows, I'm not the judge. He is the judge. So my eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. So think about anxiety, your anxiety. Doesn't it feel weak? Like when you're anxious, doesn't that feel almost almost humble? And weak. But in reality, it's more often the result of pride and arrogance. So just keep your finger in Psalm 131 and flip to 1 Peter just to see one example of this. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 and 7. It's on page 1017 if you're using that Pew Bible. Listen to how Peter writes here. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your cares, your anxieties on him, because he cares for you. So the sentence could be boiled down to, Humble yourselves, casting all your anxieties. So how do you humble yourself? By casting your anxieties on the Lord. So what would the opposite be? If you're proud, you try to bear them all yourself. You try to have the weight of the world on your own shoulders. That's pride. And you know what I think is underneath that sometimes? Have you ever seen this in yourself or someone you've been talking to? I think oftentimes there's a sentiment, especially when things are hard, we're suffering, or people around us that we care about are suffering, is, you know what? God doesn't seem to be doing this God thing all that well. At least not as well as I could do if I was God. We might not actually say it, but that's what's underneath it. And so we're going to help him out by registering our concern. (sighs) We're going to just bear the weight of the world on our shoulders. You know, if God's not going to care as much as I do, about me or about someone else that's suffering, at least from their limited perspective. Well, at least I will. So do you see the presumption, the pride in that? The preoccupation with things that aren't your responsibility? And then what happens if you're in that place where you're kind of, you know, it's, it's just kind of smoldering under the surface. You're not happy with how God's running his universe. 
you wish you could kind of take the wheel for a little while. What happens is sometimes you look around at other people that seem to just be doing just fine and maybe at peace, and you resent them. You're looking down on them with haughty eyes, just like this psalm is the opposite. I, I, I don't look around with those haughty eyes, David says. So we can criticize or resent those who don't feel the weight that we do. I mean, have you ever met someone who's trusting the Lord, is not anxious, and you kind of judge them? You, you feel superior to them because you're obviously, they're not taking life as seriously as you are. Now, sometimes that's because they are blissfully ignorant, they haven't suffered, and they're just clueless. Okay, that's sometimes the case. But sometimes it's just our arrogance. So you can see how the lifted up heart and haughty eyes are not just in relation to God, but also to others as well, and they're connected. So just lest we misunderstand, let's make sure that we know what this psalm is not saying here in verse 1. This is not avoiding hard things, not taking on challenges. It's not that. It's not checking your brains at the door. It's not a blind leap of faith into the dark. It's not childish faith. It's childlike faith that this psalm is calling us to. He is not at all calling us to a card house, superficial faith that's just kind of like whistling in the dark. What it is, is it's a rejection of pride. It's spiritual modesty. It's learning to live with questions that God has chosen not to answer for us, at least not yet. So it's humility that knows enough to know it doesn't know much. It's called learned ignorance. So Wendell Berry is a farmer who's almost become like a cultural prophet, if you've never heard his name. He's written some really interesting things, and he's got a book called The Way of Ignorance. And in that book, he says this, Some scientists and their gullible followers think that human ignorance is merely an agenda for research. Eventually, they think, we humans will have in hand the secret of life or the secret of the universe, and then all our problems will be solved and all our troubles and sorrows ended. Then he says, our ignorance is irremediable. Some problems are unsolvable and some questions unanswerable. That, do what we will, we are never going to be free of mortality, partiality, like knowing in part, fallibility and error. The extent of our knowledge will always be, at the same time, the measure of the extent of our ignorance. The way of ignorance, therefore, is to be careful, to know the limits and the efficacy of our knowledge. It is to be humble and to work on an appropriate scale. It's a good word. David has learned enough about himself and enough about his God to know his limits as a creature and to accept them. So it's a refusal to overreach and overestimate oneself, a refusal to be wise in our own estimation. It's a humble recognition of how small and limited we are and how big and infinite God is. So it's an acceptance. Have you ever Run across this verse, Deuteronomy 29, 29. Just listen. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. So there's some questions that you're just not going to get a full and final answer in this life. We look through a glass darkly. 
So how do sovereignty and responsibility ultimately come together and are compatible? Why God allows the degree of suffering that he does in the lives of some of his saints? Why is God's timing what it is? Why doesn't he answer our prayers in the way that we want, even when they seem to be good prayers in line with his word? Why he delivers some and not others? We're just not going to have the answer to all of our questions. So we can rage and kind of kick against that, or we can accept it and recognize that we are limited. It's like Job. Hard stuff happened to him. And he was struggling with the silence. And then finally the Lord answered. <laughs> and even though Job was vindicated, at the end, God also had some pretty hard, sober words for him. Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. I will question you, and you make it known to me. Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? And then Job, he gained perspective. And he said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I mean, this, this is truth that's all through the Bible. Like Isaiah 55, God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I mean, if we really accept that, then we're going to run into some stuff we don't understand, right? I mean, how small of a God would we have if we just were able to understand and predict his every move? We should understand that we're going to run into some mystery, and we need to be okay with that as the creature and trust him. Romans 11, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? He doesn't need one. So here's this call to humble trust, this call that actually, even though we don't have an answer to all these questions, the call to trust is not too hard. It's not too high. The life of faith is accessible to us. So have you ever seen this where the path of faith is relatively clear? We just don't like it, especially when we have these questions. And I think sometimes we just occupy ourselves with what we cannot know. We concern ourselves with, what's too, with that which is too high for us. And it can almost become like an excuse to avoid the path of clear faith and faithfulness. It's almost a way to filibuster obedience. Have you ever done that? <laughs> I don't really want to walk this road. It's pretty clear but I'm just really frustrated about all these things. And I'm just going to stay frustrated about all these things as an excuse to not trust and obey. So David is telling us, no, no, that's not the path. The life of faith is a path of humble recognition that God's ways and thoughts are not our ways and thoughts, infinitely higher than ours. He's God. We're not. And we should be okay with that. Because he's good. He is trustworthy. So embracing this actually leads to a kind of humble composure that is compelling. You read verse 1, that's pretty compelling. I mean, you overhear him praying like this, 
you're probably going to ask, wow, how did you get there? What path did you take? Well, he goes on to explain in verse 2 how he quieted his soul. So look at verse 2. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother, like a weaned child is my soul within me. So a weaned child is a child who is no longer nursing, you know, on solid foods. But listen to one commentator, helps us not miss the point here. The age of the child is in the simile of the weaned child should not be stressed. The word for this weaned child may also mean contented. So the suggestion is sometimes made that a weaned child is no longer restless when it's with its mother because it no longer frets for milk. However, a baby satisfied with its mother's milk can also lie contented on its mother's breast. The essential picture is that of contentment regardless of age. So the psalmist feels a deep sense of peace, tranquility, and contentment with God. So either picture, if it's referring to the nursing child who has nursed and is now content, I mean, have you ever seen that just like, you know, like, the, like after the baby has nursed, so content at peace with mom, not rooting around, not, not freaking out and, and crying. Or, yes, the weaned child, you've probably seen the toddler who is, you know, squirrely and freaking out and scared or whatever, and then they come and sit on mommy's lap and just kind of, they're just content to be with mom. That's the picture. The presence of God is enough. Just like the presence of mom is enough. So even if you don't know the answer to some of the questions that are plaguing your mind, you have God, and he's enough. That's actually a learning process. That doesn't just happen like that. It's just like Paul in Philippians 4. He says, I've learned the secret of contentment. It doesn't come with a, a little more. It comes by really getting the fact that whether I have a little or have a lot, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I've got Jesus. So it's the same thing here. So listen to, uh, David Powson has an incredibly helpful article called Peace Be Still, and it's on Psalm 131. And let me just quote a little bit from that article. He says, amazingly, this man isn't noisy inside. He isn't busy, 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 not obsessed, not on edge. The to-do list and pressures to achieve don't consume him. Ambition doesn't churn inside. Failure and despair don't haunt him. Anxiety isn't spinning him into free fall. He isn't preoccupied with thinking up the next thing he wants to say. Regrets don't corrode his inner experience. Irritation and dissatisfaction don't devour him. He's not stumbling through the minefield of blind longings and fears. He's quiet. Are you quiet inside? Is Psalm 131 your experience too? When your answer is no, it naturally invites follow-up questions. What is the noise going on inside you? Where does it come from? How do you get busy and preoccupied? Why? Do you lose your composure? When do you get worried, irritable, wearied, or hopeless? How can you regain composure? And then he says... Get a clear picture of what Psalm 131 is not. It does not portray blissful, unruffled detachment, a meditative state of higher consciousness. It's not stoic indifference, becoming philosophical about life. It's not having an easygoing personality, so don't write it off. Or having low expectations, so you're easy to please. It's not retreat from the troubles of life and the commotion of other people. It's not retirement to a life of ease and wealth. 
the quiet of having nothing to do and no worries. It's not, oh, David finally moved to Arizona and he's playing golf and then he wrote Psalm 131. Okay, it's not that. It's not the quieting of inner noise that a glass of wine or a daily dose of Prozac produces. After all, David, as a kingdom builder, in, was a kingdom builder in real life, real time. He expected and achieved huge things in the midst of commotion and trouble. His, he experienced pressure, joy, heartache, outrage, affection, courage. So Psalm 131's inner quiet comes in the midst of actions, relationships, and problems. And then he says this, this composure is learned, and it is learned in relationship. Such purposeful quiet is achieved, not spontaneous. It is conscious, alert, and chosen. It's a form of self-mastery by the grace of God. Surely I have composed and quieted my soul. And it happens in living relationship with someone else, capital S and E. You are discipled into such composure. You learn it from someone Listen and watch carefully. You'll come to understand a form of self-mastery that arises only in relationship. Can you get to this quieted place here and now in your actual life? Yes, you can. Get there from here. This psalm is from a man who leads you by the hand. The last sentence of the psalm stops talking with God and talks to you. Psalm 131 aims to become your words as a chosen, anointed, loved, and blessed child. So learning to quiet your soul is a spiritual discipline. That's why this is a fight of faith. It's not going to come easily or naturally, but thankfully God gives us a guide here to, to take us by the hand and teach us this path. So our prideful anxiety is pretty stubborn. It's like a drug. And we need weaned off that drug desperately. The opposite of the quietness is the noisiness and chaos in the soul that I think we all know, the churning, the uneasy, the stomach tied up in knots, mind racing. Where does that come from? Lots of answers, but how about guilt? Does yours ever come from guilt? Failure and regret? Uncertainty about the future? So there's actually a path here to walk, and David's going to take us there so that we can be comfortable in our own skin. We can know who we are, whose we are, like a weaned child with his mother. We can be content and composed, and that only happens when we get verse 3, when we understand verse 3. So we know it's a spiritual discipline. David did this. He quieted his soul like a weaned child. And there's this description here of peace that passes understanding. You know, this example of keeping him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on him because he trusts in him, Isaiah 26. This is like a living picture of it. So where does that come from? David makes it explicit in verse 3 as he turns to us and exhorts us directly. He's praying to God, and now he's going to talk to us. How do you find quietness of soul and soul-level calm? Here's how. Hope is how. Where is your hope? Verse 3. O Israel, people of God, hope in Yahweh. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. So here is the how. 
In fact, if you can see this, you might want to look down at Psalm 131. Just, just track with me here. Here's how the psalm functions. Verse 1 functions like a hook. You get the results first. And then as the reader, you're like, how did he get there? And then he talks about the path in verse 2, and then he talks about the how in verse 3. In our experience, it actually moves the other way. Three, two, one. When we hope in the Lord, we are weaned off of our anxiety, and we can be in this composed, peaceful place of verse 1. You see? So verse 3 is really the mother load of power and grace to change. So you could also flip it around and say, flip the idea around and say that our anxieties are a result of misplaced hope. Okay? So we need to get our hope in the right place. Now, if you were reading the Psalter, a bell would go off. If you were kind of reading through, a bell would go off when you got to this verse and you say, wait a second. I just read about this in the last chapter. So look at Psalm 130. Another song of ascents. Look at what is written there. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? So here's some guilt. Like, I've got iniquities. I've got sin. How am I going to stand before the God of the universe, the Lord, the judge of all the earth? If he marks them, I'm toast. But with you, there's forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for you then. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning, more than the watchman for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord. Same thing as verse 3. See it? For with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption. And he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. So I love this comment by Alec Motier. He says, the way hope in the Lord is repeated, the way that that's repeated, not only links the Psalms, but means that, there are, that those who have waited patiently on Yahweh for redemption must go on replicating that attitude in perpetuity, like keep going, waiting on the Lord. The key to redemption is the key to life. At the end of our pilgrimage, rest is not just a city, but the God of that city. In Psalm 130, waiting was a means to redemption. In Psalm 131, it's a lifestyle. Okay, what does that mean? Here's the point. The same gospel that saves, that redeems, is the gospel that deals with our anxieties and produces quietness of soul. So we're saved by grace through faith in Christ. We are strengthened against our anxieties by grace through faith in Christ. So the fight of faith from the first to the last. So listen to Proverbs 20, or 12, 25. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. So just take those common sources of the noise inside. How about guilt? So what do you do if you are churning because of mistakes and failures and guilt? Well, we can hope in the Lord, right? Because we have good news. Anxiety in man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. We've got good news that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
if, I mean, God knows every ugly thought, everything we've ever done, and he sent his son to pay for all of that, to deal with our sin and send it away as far as the east is from the west. So if you are trusting in Jesus as your savior for your sins, your guilt is dealt with. It's completely washed away. You can have a clean conscience. You can sleep well. To say that the cross isn't enough for your sin would be arrogant, right? Humbly, you accept that he has He's died even for this. Even for this. I can't believe I gave into temptation again, but even this, if I confess my, my sins, he's faithful and just to forgive me and cleanse me. Cleanse me from all unrighteousness. My, my guilt is totally dealt with, and I can be calm and composed. I can be comfortable in my own skin. I mean, why are we so often so antsy and nervous and skittish? Because we're guilty we don't like how much we failed, and we want to hide it. And we kind of try to construct an image to make ourselves look better. Just enough with that self-righteousness project. This has all been dealt with. So if we're hoping in the Lord, the guilt is dealt with. Blessed is the one whose sins are forgiven, and we're calm and composed. You see? So hope in the Lord. You can preach the gospel to your failure and re regrets as well. Okay, so what ends up happening is sometimes because of our failure and our regrets, we're, we're just frustrated that we look bad. Well, what matters is not all that we can do for God, that we can look like a great success and have this great reputation. What matters is trusting God. He's also the master of new beginnings. So if you've failed and screwed up, okay, you can start anew. He can bring remarkable good and beauty out of failures and wreckage. Or uncertainty about the future. That's certainly, you know, all kinds of chaos. What if, what if? Wake up in the morning and you're churning. Your mind is racing. Your heart is, your stomach is in knots. Well, is the Lord really your shepherd? With him as your shepherd, is he going to take care of you? If he didn't spare his own son but willingly gave him up for us all, will he not also with him graciously give you what you need for today? So we take those anxieties and we run right to the Lord and we hope in him and those anxieties start to melt away and composure and peace replaces them. So my mom called me early this morning. She doesn't usually call me on Sunday mornings. She usually texts me on Sunday mornings early and says she's praying for me, which I'm thankful for that. She was teaching Sunday school, and she's teaching about Satan, actually, this morning. Um, she's really feeling under attack, so she wanted me to pray. So spiritual warfare can be a reason for anxiety, and so, I don't know, I just started praying, and all these passages came to mind. So I was just praying God's word over her, and I was encouraged because you know what? Satan is created. Guess what that means? God's infinitely more powerful than Satan. That's good news. And you know what? 1 John 4 says, greater is he that's in you. Spirit of God resides within us. Spirit of Jesus resides within us. 
Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. Satan may be a roaring lion prowling about seeking whom he may devour, but we can resist him firm in the faith and he will flee. Our battle's not against flesh and blood. We're in a spiritual battle, but we've been given the full armor of God. We have the sword of the Spirit. It's like God's hand is on our hand wielding the sword of the Spirit. So anyway, there were other passages, but she said afterwards that she just experienced, you know, peace wash over her as we were praying together, and I was encouraged. The whole point is, she's anxious. She's wanting to hope in God. She hopes in God. This greater word comes in. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. A good word, a gracious word of why we can trust and hope in God, and we're composed, we're content, we're quieted, just like that weaned child. So what, what sources of anxiety are you facing right now? Is it financial? Well, what if Matthew 6 is true? That you have a father who knows what you need before you even ask. That's really true. So you can hope in him. Like, not a sparrow falls to the ground without his knowledge. So here's the thing. What we need to fight is our unbelief that fights against the truth of God's word. How many times do you find yourself kind of rising up with this yeah, but thing? Or have you ever talked to somebody where you're trying to encourage them, they're struggling, you can try to encourage them and they say, yeah, but... So try to remind somebody of a promise or somebody's trying to remind you of a promise and you're, yeah, but what are we looking for when we're doing that, when we're stiff-arming God's word, his truth, his promises? Do we want to justify our anxiety more than we want to fight and overcome it? You see how crazy that is? Do we want to be the exception to God's promises? Well, yeah, 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 but... But for me, I don't know. Do you, is, that, is that what you want to be? Do we want to justify not trusting God? That's craziness. That needs to be fought. So we can cut ourselves off from the grace of God when we yeah, but the grace of God away. And when we do that, no wonder we downplay the power of his promises. It's called self-fulfilling prophecy, right? <laughs> so enough with that. The answer to our anxieties is not going to be found within endless introspection. It's not going to be found even in a change in our circumstances, though that can be a blessing oftentimes. It will only be found in God when we look up and hope in him. Anxiety in a man's heart weighs him down, but a good word makes him glad. All right, so it's not super hot in here this morning, you know, it's cooler, so you can track with me here, because I'm, I'm kind of like having you think, so I'm going to do it one more time, okay, before we're done and we come to the table. I once heard John Piper say something in a sermon, I was cutting the grass on a Saturday back in Wheaton, Illinois, okay? He said, when you put your hope in God, your life becomes a foretaste of your cherished future. I told you you'd have to think. Okay, and I heard that and I was like, wow, that sounds profound, but I don't know what he's talking about. 
So I started thinking about it. When you put your hope in God, your life becomes a foretaste of your cherished future. So I kept thinking about it, and it started to become clear. If you put your hope in money, and that hope is threatened or dashed, how will you respond? Your life falling apart is a foretaste of your ruined, cherished future. If you put your hope in a game, this is really pedestrian, but you'll see the point. If you put your hope in a game or a concert or something, we look forward to these things. You joyfully anticipate. You're kind of like nicer to people, you know, before this thing comes up because just like you've got something to look forward to. If the weather cancels it, what do you do? You pout and you get irritable. If you put your hope in retirement, and if your retirement investments are doing well, you're happy, but you're going to get depressed when you get diagnosed with cancer at 66 or when the stocks go in the tank. Your life is an embodiment of your cherished future. Your life is a foretaste of your cherished or crumbling, hoped-for future. So here's the point. All the world's hopes are shaky and fragile which means if your hope is set on them, your peace, your joy will also be fragile. So only when you hope in God will your hope never disappoint you. And only when you hope in God will your peace and joy be unshakable, like David's is here. So the sovereignty, the faithfulness, the goodness of God, his promises to never leave you or forsake you, to ultimately do you good, if you believe in that, if you hope in him, if you hope in him for all of that, then your present composure that is produced by that is a testimony to the future you know is yours in him. You see that? Our peace this Psalm 131, composure and contentment and peace is a testimony of the cherished future that's ours in God that can't be taken away by anyone or anything. Don't you want that? So hope in God. Verse 3. Okay, so I'm going to do it one more time. I've quoted from this book a bunch through this series. We've encouraged you to I think like 50 people have bought it, which is great. Really, really helpful book. They're available one more day here. Don't Follow Your Heart by John Bloom. So I'm going to quote one more chapter, most of a chapter, and then we will participate in the table here together. So this chapter is called God's Bright Design for Your Bitter Providences. God tells us everything we know, need to know to live godly lives. 2 Peter 1.3, but sometimes we wonder. The unexpected, unexplained twists and turns our lives take create all kinds of apparent uncertainties for us, and the profound pain we endure can be so perplexing. There is so much God doesn't tell us, so much we think we would really like to know. But as Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. This means that as creatures, we must learn to live contentedly with what God intends to be mysterious to us and grab hold of the revealed things with everything we have. The secret 
secrets God keeps from us are a greater mercy to us than we likely realize. We often forget just how thin is the sliver of reality we see and the information we can contain at any given time. Humans are not equipped to handle what the Bible calls the knowledge of good and evil. When we want God to start giving us some answers, we need the Bible to help us get our heads out of the claustrophobic confines of our private world and into the galactic greatness of what he is letting us be a part of. We need to remember that we're dealing with God here. God is a person for whom time, space, and matter present no limitations. He has dimensions accessible to him that we know nothing about. He is Trinitarian in essence. He holds tens, maybe hundreds of billions of galaxies together by the word of his power. He has created and governs every throne, dominion, ruler, and authority, and every being that is invisible to us, whether angel or demon. He is orchestrating all of human history with its multiple billions of complex individuals, past, present, and future, of which each of us is only one, and multiple trillions of interweaving causes and effects of which each of us only experiences a relative handful. And he's working all of these things toward a point when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we wonder why we struggle to understand what God is doing in our difficult circumstances. God is doing 10,000 things in our circumstances. That's likely a significant underestimate. We would fall on our faces in awe-filled worship if we saw the chain reaction for our eternal good and that of other present and future believers that God is engineering in just one seemingly random occurrence that today might be the source of our grumbling because of the grief it is causing us. Now think of a lifetime's worth. Every moment and level of suffering we experience as we live by faith is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, 2 Corinthians 4. That thing that you don't want, that you're weary of, that you plead with God to remove, and might remove at some point unless he says otherwise, is preparing you for glory. The God who governs the visible and invisible worlds knows what he is doing in your life. The God who was brutally murdered on a Roman cross knows what it's like to suffer and how to redeem it. Specifically, how he will bring out of your trials, specifically, how he will bring good out of your trials may be mysterious to you now. But that he will bring good out of them is not a mystery, it's a promise. The secret things are the Lord's for a very good reason. Trust him with the mystery. But the revealed things are yours, and they are glorious. Believe them, and one day you'll share God's holiness and all the forever pleasures he has prepared for you. Hope in God, our loving, faithful, sovereign Father. And when we do, the certainty of our cherished future will trickle back into our minds and into our hearts and drive out the anxieties and the uncertainties and the fears, and they'll fill us with quietness of soul and composure, a peace that passes understanding that will guard our heart and our mind in Christ Jesus. Let's pray.